It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and welcome back to the vir- or to the virtual bible study tonight we're live on your computer and we're glad to be back on your computer again this week this is the virtual bible study for september 10th 2009 my name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is across the table from me tonight. Hello, Dad. Welcome to the program. Jacob, it's good to be here. And, and we could sort of be welcoming the people back after a six-day, 23-hour interlude or uh, intermission. And they've no doubt been hanging on the edge of their seat for yeah. all that time. Yeah. yeah. So you're back. You can relax. Now we're back on your computer. We're but we do hope that it is something that you come back to again and again. We hope that our listeners make it a regular habit to be joining our Internet Bible study group every Thursday night. And uh, we we think we talk about some important biblical subjects that we all need to to be reminded of and learn about. And so we're glad for everyone who's listening, both in our live audience and those who may be listening later by way of the archives. And we have a special guest behind the curtain tonight. Yeah, uh, our our normal camera operators are are. Indisposed. Indisposed. That's a good way to say it. Indisposed tonight. And so our good friend Arthur Haynes is is running the camera. But since he's uh, also typically has some good comments to make, we've given him a, a microphone. And he may jump in here from off camera and make some comments. And, uh, and we hope he'll do that. But we thank Arthur for joining us as our camera operator he tonight. He is normally one of our few audio stream listeners. And uh, we've had some problems in the last few weeks. So he came to get it from the horse's mouth tonight. Yeah, no, but no we technical think, problems tonight. And no technical problems. And we think we do have our technical problems uh, ironed out. So uh, hopefully that's the case. All right. We'd like to hear from you on the program tonight at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com or join in the chat room tonight with other listeners who are viewing the program from our our video feed at ustream.tv. Follow the instructions on your screen, and you can join in the chat room so we got, tonight. So we've got the chat room. We've got email. We, we always field our emails throughout the program, and we also have uh, a toll-free telephone number, 877-381-4567. So you got three good ways to contact us. Uh, we want you to jump in tonight, Jacob. Oh, before we get to tonight's discussion, I wanted to update our listeners about um, David Martin of the Solid Rock Baptist Church. He's the fellow that we dealt with uh, some questions that he had uh, posed for members of the Church of Christ, said we couldn't answer them. We, we answered them two weeks ago. Last week, we had our listeners pose some questions to him, and we sent him archives of both of those programs with the hope that he would listen and respond. We have not heard anything yet. But uh, we had been warned that that probably would be the outcome. But we'll keep you informed. If we ever do hear anything from David Martin of the Solid Rock Baptist Church in Bartlett, Tennessee, we'll let you know. We hope that he would join us on the program and deal with some of the, the issues that divide us. We're not done trying. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to try to contact That's him. right. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, hopefully you hear it in the coming weeks. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about a different topic completely. And of various topics, we're going to talk about listener-submitted questions. We've been doing this more often, but I guess, Jacob, that's just indicative of the fact that more people are listening and we're, getting more, and we're getting more feedback, and so people are sending us questions. If you send us a question, we hang on to it, and then when we get several together, we, we put, a, put a mess of them in a pot, and we, we have a program like this where we just want to deal with various questions. If you have... This is sort of open forum night, uh, and if you have just any random question that's been on your mind, some biblical question that you'd like to hear discussed, you can send us a new question tonight. And if we get time, we'll get to one of the, one, your question even tonight. Uh, so it's wide open tonight. We're going to talk about some things that people have been sending us. That's why we have Arthur here tonight, and that's why we didn't let him be on the on the screen on the camera in front of the camera tonight because he's going to be up to his elbows flipping through the scriptures. He's going to be yeah. finding all the Bible answers. That's for right. Us. And so you can call in and stump him 
And we're going to throw all the questions to you. Yeah, all the, Arthur gets all the hard questions tonight. And uh, the number to call is 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Maybe you've been studying and you just have a question about something that you've read. Maybe you've talked with a friend and he had, or she had a question that you didn't feel like you had a good answer for. Or maybe uh, you disagree with something you've heard on the virtual Bible study recently and you'd like to talk about it with us. Any of those uh, way uh, reasons would be a good reason to contact us tonight with your question about the scriptures. Any question goes on the program tonight. Uh, also, uh, remember that we send out our discussion topic earlier in the day on Thursdays, and we did that today. We sent out these questions that we we're planning to discuss tonight so that people could get a head start on uh, answering them. And if you'd like to be on our update list, we keep that list keeps growing, but you just send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. And we will uh, add you to our list. Just put it on the subject line, add me to the list. You're not using that list to spam anybody, just uh, sending them. No, but you know what? I think some people are – I've gotten word from some people that they're not getting our updates anymore. And if you happen to be one of those, very likely what's happened is that your uh, email uh, provider has probably marked that as spam because those things come pretty often and they come. They have a, a a pretty big BCC mailing list attached to them, and so it may be that your spam filter is is knocking them out. You might check that and, and check and see if you look in your spam filter and see if we're being diverted there, and see if you can correct that on your end. How many? How big is your list now? Do you know? Well, several hundred. Okay. Yeah. So join in if you're not uh, on the list. Uh, a good way for you to keep in touch with the virtual Bible study, and you can also. Sign up to follow the Virtual Bible Study on Twitter. VBS Questions is our name at Twitter. VBS Questions, uh, and and follow us on Twitter, and we send our updates out on Twitter as well. You can also join with other listeners who are on Facebook. There is a Facebook group that has been started, and you can join in there. So lots of ways for you to keep in touch with the Virtual Bible Study tonight. Well, we've got seven questions on our list until we add some more from our listeners. You want to go ahead and get yeah, into Yeah, start those? with that first one, Jacob. The first question was submitted a few weeks ago by a listener, I believe, in Indiana. The question is, can a Christian teenager or adult have a tattoo? Are there any passages by inference or implication that would condemn this popular practice today? And that is a good question. Uh, certainly we want to know uh, if we have authority to do a certain act, and so it is a good question to ask. Is uh, a tattoo something that's scriptural? We could make it even a little more broader. Body piercing has become popular in the past few years and or more popular, and uh, we see a lot of body piercing. So what do we say about tattoos and body piercing according to what the scriptures say? Um, I think you can get answers all across the board, Jacob, on that question. I did. I, I got one article off of a website on the Internet in which this – uh, you were invited to ask a minister a question, and um, he's, he, he took the definite position, no, Christians should not have tattoos. But I thought his reasoning was flawed because he said that, uh, um, for instance, one of his arguments was that uh, tattoos are wrong by reason of the principle of adornment. And then he referenced First Peter chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Now, let me read that. While they behold your chaste conversation, coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair, the wearing of gold, putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Well, the problem with using that verse to say you shouldn't have tattoos is, if you're going to if you're going to take that passage and say you can't have any adornment of the body, then you couldn't have any kind of braiding of the hair, you couldn't wear any jewelry of any kind whatsoever. But notice, you also couldn't put on apparel because apparel adorns the body. This passage is just saying that for Christians, the important thing is the inner man of the heart, and we want it to be right. And and so it's not saying that you couldn't wear jewelry, couldn't have a hairdo, couldn't wear clothes. It's saying that's not where the emphasis is for a person who's really trying to portray a godly disposition. All right, and I think uh, Anthony in Columbia has uh, chimed in with a similar uh, response he says absolutely a christian or young person a young person or an adult christian could have 
tattoos. He says, though I would add that the image itself would, of course, need to be appropriate, just as clothing we wear would need to have appropriate images and wording. There's no New Testament argument that can be made against tattoos. Saying a Christian can't have a tattoo would be like saying a woman can't pierce her ears or color her hair. These are all things that pertain to our superficial appearance. God is not a respecter of persons. He is not concerned with our physical appearance other than conveying our nake, or covering our nakedness and dressing modestly. I would agree with Anthony for the most part, but I think there is another aspect to consider when we consider tattoos and body piercing. And I think that aspect would be the image that would be conveyed. And I think he's, he's hinting at that with some of his comments. We yeah. would want to make sure uh, that the image that we portray is one that would be becoming to, of a Christian. That's right. And if, if, if by way of tattoos or body piercing or by way of the clothes that I wear or if by way of the jewelry I wear or if by way of the hairdo that I have, I give the impression that I'm some sort of rebellious person uh or or maybe that i you know there's certain kind of clothes that convey a certain attitude or disposition uh and i wouldn't want to portray a, a sinful disposition or attitude in the way that i adorn myself or the way that i present myself uh, you know i wouldn't want to look like a uh some kind of uh uh evil you know Biker or something. You know, I'm not saying all bikers are evil, but I, I wouldn't want to look like you know somebody who's a member of a motorcycle. Let's gang. go to the body body piercing, friends. There is some body piercing associated with immoral activity, right? And I wouldn't want to, even if I wasn't engaged in the immoral activity, I wouldn't want to have the uh, adornment of someone who was. And so uh, that's something to consider as we think about. Well, there this. was there was one t- one episode that I remember several years ago where. Uh, a, a certain person was dressing in the style that very commonly indicates a person is a homosexual. Now, the argument was that this person was not a homosexual. Well, that being the case, and of course, it's certainly sinful to be a homosexual, but, but you would, if, if you're not a homosexual, why would you want to dress or act like one and leave people with the impression you're one if you're not? So all of those kind of things, I think, go to this question. I don't think that you can find a single New Testament passage that says it's wrong to have a tattoo or to have body piercing. But that has to be mitigated by what you're saying, Jacob, is we want to make sure that we're not leaving a, a bad impression or setting a bad example. There's an Old Testament verse that I think people often go to, but it's like lots of Old Testament verses. We can't use it as our authority today. Just for point of reference, in Leviticus 19.28 in the law of Moses, it says, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Well, that was a rule for the Jews. And I think probably the reason why is what we're talking about here. That was common practice of the pagans, those who worshipped idols. And God didn't want his people imitating the conduct of those who who were in, engaged in those false religious practices. And so... I, I don't think you can use that verse in Leviticus 19 to say it's wrong for us, but it, it probably, what was underlying that instruction is probably an appropriate thing for us to think about. We don't want to give a wrong impression. And so that's a, it's a judgment call. That, that's that's the way to leave is, it. That's the way you got to leave it. That's the way you got to leave it. And yeah. uh, we need to be careful about making judgment calls. And, and I'll, I'll go one step farther, Dad. We need to be careful about how we look at other people when they may make a, a judgment call that's different. Than exactly. Us. Exactly. And, uh, we don't want to bind our opinions on others. That's right. We can't we can't bind an opinion on something that we admit is our own opinion. We can't, we just can't do that. Be wrong. All right. Uh, Anthony is in the chat room tonight. He says, yes, I agree. In our culture, it may be tattoos and piercings, but in other cultures, we would not want to do something that would associate us with a sinful, rebellious group. And that is true. We may be doing something that's culturally acceptable in America, and we might travel to another country and engaged in that activity over there would cause us to look like we're uh, well, if you t- If you took us today dressed in the kind of clothes that we're dressed in and, and could time warp us back to the first century, we would look like some kind of crazy people. People didn't dress this way then. And so, you know, we, we are saying that societal regulations do make some do factor into our judgments now they're not absolute but they but in areas of judgment or opinion they do factor in we're getting an email on this question jacob let me get to this um mindy uh writes in to say 
Are tattoos holy or glorifying God? First Peter 1, 15, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. I think that's, I, I think probably that's right along the lines of what we're saying. Uh, if it's something, first of all, if the subject matter, as we've said, of a tattoo is, is improper, that would definitely have to be avoided. You got to factor in the attitude question and the influence and the example question. But, you know, you could say the same thing about body piercings. You know, most women have pierced ears. Uh, that, and so that's become, that's become considered acceptable. Maybe a generation ago it wasn't, but it is now. And so judgment calls can change based upon societal influences. Uh, absolutes can't. All right. Hey, you know, I'll take your judgment call and push it one step farther. You know, uh, I know you have strong feelings about men having pierced ears. Yeah, boy. We have to say the same thing, though, if we're going to be consistent, right? Uh, yeah, I can't go there, though. You can't. Well, <laughs> I can't either, but I'm just telling you, we, you know, we've got to be consistent. 877. Arthur, you got something you want to add? 877 okay. right. one you got to get in here Again, you got to think about the way you look and, 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 and the, the image that you portray. And, and being a Christian is about a portraying an image. Because other people are looking at us. We, and we don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. Absolutely. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. And I think that is where we have to leave uh, this question. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, go ahead, Arthur, before the break, and uh, chime in there. You're on. Go ahead. Uh, I was just kept thinking of these verses in uh, Genesis 38 and uh, saying, you know, different clothing or different things pretty well identify a person. There in the case of uh, Jacob, uh, his uh, daughter-in-law, she saw that she wasn't going to get the younger son, so she puts on This was Judah. It was Judah. Judah, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, excuse me, Judah. And she puts on the widow's garment from her, and she covered herself with a veil, and she wrapped herself and sat sat in an open place, which was by the way of Timnath, and she saw that Sheila was not grown, which was uh, uh, Judah's uh, younger son, and she was not given to him, her to him, her to be his wife. So Judah saw her and thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. So he turned, turned into her, not knowing it was a daughter-in-law, and then and had a relationship with her. And then after that took place in verse 19, she said, "Then she laid off her veil, laid it by her from her, and put on her garments of widowhood." So we can see pretty well what we've been saying. Uh, according to how you dress or how uh, you do, a lot of time identifies the kind of person you are. Proverbs 7, verse 10 talks about the attire of a harlot. A harlot dresses a certain way to give that message. And you can tell that, that, Arthur, when you go out to lunch and during the week when people are are taking their lunch break and you maybe go out to a sandwich shop, you can tell by looking at the people what kind of work they do for a living just because of the way that they're presenting Exactly right. So we do... uh, Make that known to people. We make a statement. We make a statement with our clothes. Exactly. All right. right. We need to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue with our listeners' questions. And we'd like for you to join in and submit your questions as well. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN, it's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock, it's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny.
Computers are good for lots of things, but there's no better way you could be using yours than to participate in the virtual Bible study every Thursday night. Can you think of a better use of your time? Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. We're glad you're a part of the program, but we're looking forward to hearing from you. Don't just sit there uh, silent tonight. This is an open forum. Any question goes, so send in your questions or comment. We'll look forward to hearing from you on the program. Well, the tattoo issue is really getting we're getting, we're getting some feedback. I got an, an email from Indiana in which a listener says, tattoos can be used for many reasons, display of art, protesting something, advertising, and many more. The most important thought is why you are doing it and is it acceptable from a Christian view? I've seen many beautiful tattoos that are very clean and then others that are totally disgusting. You also have to realize that a tattoo is a lifelong action and it's not easy to remove if you change your mind later about what you've done. That that to me is a big practical uh, question to think about, but uh, uh, I, I think that that response is is right along the lines of what we've been saying. We need to we need to move on from that question, Jacob. We're going to cover these others. All right. Let uh, me get to the next one. Let's, let's go, go to the next one. Go ahead. Uh, and and basically on tattoos, we're just going to have to say we've got to leave that in the realm of individual judgment. Absolutely. All right. The second question is we got an email from Jonathan in Cookville who says. I was thinking about the reason that a person is taken to the church when they want to be baptized if it's outside of the normal worship period. For example, when I was 12, I was baptized, and we called the preacher and some others to meet us at the church at about midnight. The ironic thing is that we had a swimming pool in the backyard. And then uh, he goes on, and it says, Would it not make sense to baptize someone at the absolute nearest body of water when that decision is made? Take, for example, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. When the eunuch said, see, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip didn't respond with, nothing does. We'll send someone ahead of us to have everything prepared for the baptism as soon as we get to the next town. They stopped and immediately performed the baptism right then. If there's a large bathtub, swimming pool, or even a rain barrel at somebody's home, why not perform the baptism using those means instead of driving to the church and delaying the baptism by possibly a couple of hours simply so that the baptistry can be used? Well, I... I I actually think that that the question uh, is probably presupposes something that I uh, that we always that our practice is always to baptize in a church building baptistry, which is not the case. I mean, at least in in my experience, that's not always the case. I have baptized people in bathtubs, uh, so uh, I'm I'm right with Jonathan on the idea that. Uh, we, we should not delay, and if possible, if, if there's a if there's a adequate or suitable body of water nearby uh we ought to use it now i i think the reason why we use the the baptistry the church building most often is because it is just a good expedient it's there it's ready it's convenient for the purpose uh, and typically can be accessed fairly easily but uh, i wouldn't be adamant about that at all exactly there's nothing mystical about a baptistry in a church building and uh, certainly it's not required to be in a baptistry if it was then the first century christians would have had a problem on their hands because they didn't have any baptistries back then exactly right so uh I, again that i guess jacob we'd probably have to say that goes to judgment as well what, what, what works best okay the fastest quickest easiest most convenient all those kind of things. Two questions up, and both of them have a judgment associated with them. Let's see if the third one does. I don't believe it will. Go ahead. Well, third... well, let me let me read this one. I've got a little bit more. Uh... Oh, we got one from Anthony here. Oh, go ahead. Anthony says, it, abso- it would absolutely make sense to use the nearest body water. After all, that's what the Ethiopian eunuch did. I have seen scriptures of or pictures of a missionary baptizing a young lady in a bathtub because it was the most immediately available body of water. And I think I've seen pictures of you doing that as well, Dad. I firmly believe that at the moment a person is convicted of sin and wants to be baptized, it should be done as immediately as possible. Sometimes the church building is the most convenient place. If the penitent sinner wants to risk his soul by delaying, that would be his judgment call. But I would not, and I did not delay, nor go some far distance to be baptized. I personally believe this is a very unwise and in a way demonstrates a lack of appreciation for the importance of baptism. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Good points, Anthony. Uh, uh, number three? Number three. Number three. In, all th- uh, in three of the Gospels, the, in the account of the demon-possessed guy in the cemetery, there is only one man mentioned. But in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, there are two men mentioned who are filled with demons. Why the variations in the gospel telling of these events? Good question. This is from Georgia. 
Uh, actually, the question's wrong. Uh, I think there are only three gospel accounts, not four. Um, Mark and Luke mention two individuals, and Matthew mentions only one filled with demons. And this was the one where Jesus sent them into a herd of swine, and they went over the cliff and drowned in the water. But it is true that Mark and Luke, Mark 5, 1 through 21, Luke 8, 26 through, 26 through 40, Mark and Luke mention two men who were involved, who were demon-possessed. Matthew 8, 28 through 34 mentions only one. Now, I think there's a, there's a pretty quick answer to that uh, that we, we can understand. You know, basically the question is, do we have a contradiction in the Scripture here? And whenever we're faced with a potential contradiction in the Scripture, all we have to do is come up with one feasible, possible explanation that resolves the, the contradiction. There may be multiple possible explanations that resolve the, the supposed contradiction, but we only need one. And in this one, I would, I would use this analogy. Let's say that, that I go home uh, this evening, and here Jacob and Arthur are in the room with me. And I go home this evening, and I say, I saw Jacob and Arthur last night, and we talked about and then talked, you know, things. Then tomorrow I meet someone different, and I say, I saw Arthur last night, and he said this or that. That Those are not contradictory statements. In other words, to one person I said I saw Jacob and Arthur, and to another person I just mentioned seeing Arthur. That's not a contradiction. Both statements are true. If you used uh, words like I only saw Arthur or there was only one man that came demon-possessed and then we read where there were two, then that would be a contradiction. But there apparently may have been something notable about the one. Maybe he stood out more and maybe than he, And maybe he did most of the speaking or maybe he was the one that Jesus interacted with most in conversationally before casting out the, the demons and so forth. But it is not a contradiction. Uh in, in which one account says there were two, but the other only mentions one, and Jesus' dealings with just one, that's not a contradiction. All right. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. You know, these these number uh, differences, sometimes you, you come across these numbers that don't line up. That, to me, does would not be something that I'd be looking for if I was looking for contradictions. How easy would it have been for if, if this if the Bible was a fraud? them to catch something like that you could catch something like that with a, with a very easy reading over certainly if somebody was trying to you know pull something over our wise and, and and make a fraudulent book they would have caught something like that. yeah that, and they would have changed they would have, they would proofreaders would have caught that and said wait we've got to fix that before we send this out exactly all right let us know your thoughts 877-381-4567 we look we, forward we've to got a little you. bit longer question on baptism next jacob we're up almost to our half hour break let's take that break and the next question has to do with baptism uh is it just symbolic of the fact that we are already saved and and what about the thief on the cross that's the gist of the next question we want to deal with so get online and give us an answer or send us Send us an email or give us a telephone call, 877-381-4567. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, that's wide open tonight. Any co- question is fair game. So if you've got a question about the Bible, let us know. We'll look forward to hearing from you. We're going to take a break and get this week's bullet point and come back on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. We've seen a considerable amount of news coverage centered on the legalization of homosexual marriages in states like California and Massachusetts. We've been repeatedly exposed to video footage of men with men and women with women standing before magistrates and exchanging vows. Holding hands and kissing one another, they profess their joy over now being married. We've also seen confrontations between those who support these homosexual marriages and others who oppose them. Unfortunately, the news media has slanted the reporting to suggest that those in opposition are fanatics, weirdos, and hate mongers. On the other hand, the supporters of these gay unions, including some very liberal theologians, have been depicted as kind, loving, tolerant, and understanding. To them, this perversion should be accepted as normal and good. It is apparent that homosexuals and their supporters have no regard for God or His will. The Bible could not be clearer in its condemnation of homosexuality. In Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 24, we read this. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly. 
who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. One would be led to believe that a large percentage of the U.S. population is homosexual and that this new norm of homosexual acceptance, including the right to marry, is natural considering the numbers of people involved. In reality, it is only the result of an aggressive promotion of the homosexual agenda. The National Health and Social Life Survey, which is the most widely accepted study of sexual practices in the U.S., found that only 2.8% of males and 1.4% of females in the U.S. identify themselves as homosexual. This is not a matter that is subject to argument, debate, or vote. The Word of God has already told us homosexuality is a sin. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, this is Preston Jackson from Valdosta, Georgia, and you're listening to the Virtual Bible Study. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. And welcome back into the virtual Bible study. We're live on your computer tonight. We look forward to hearing from you. Correction. Correction. We have a correction. All right. The Uh, the fact checker has uh, weighed in here. uh, Matthew has two in that episode, uh, and Mark and Luke have only one. We had it backwards. Matthew has two men in that episode. Mark and Luke have only one. Here's what... uh, J.W. McGarvey wrote about that. Matthew tells of two, while Mark and Luke describe only one. They tell of the principal one, the one that was the fiercer. In order to tell of two, Matthew had to omit the name Legion, which belonged to one. And conversely, Mark and Luke, to give the conversation with one, do not confuse us by telling of two. That's what McGarvey says. But we had it backwards. Matthew has two. Mark and Luke have just one man involved in that episode. All right. We're on to number four of our list of questions. And we have one, at least one more submitted by our listeners tonight. And you've got another email they're waiting on you, Dad. But in in, uh, number four, the question is, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, clearly states that baptism is a symbol of salvation. If baptism were required in order to be saved, then Jesus would have jumped off the cross, taken the thief, found the nearest river, baptized him, then put himself and the thief back on the cross. All right, so our listener obviously does not believe baptism is required in order to be saved. He says, uh, the, the listener asserts without proving that First Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says that baptism is a symbol of salvation. Let's read that. Let's go over to First Peter 3. Um it's in First Peter chapter three verse twenty. It speaks of a time when some were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Peter, by inspiration, is drawing a parallel between Noah and salvation on the ark, and us. And actually, if you follow the grammar here, the the imagery, the, the sort of the shadow and the likeness, or the type and the antitype, is Noah and the ark was a symbol of salvation through baptism. That's the way this is constructed. But the plain statement in verse 21 is, baptism doth also now save us. That's the statement that those who who don't believe in baptism can't get around. The verse says baptism does also now save us. And we could take First Peter chapter three, verse twenty one out of the out of the Bible if we if we wanted to. I mean, we wouldn't want to do that. But if you had to, you you don't have to have First Peter chapter three, verse twenty one to see that baptism does also now save us. We see numerous passages, and we've recited them in recent weeks, Dad, where uh, the scriptures tell us that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Exactly right. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Acts 238, Acts 22, 16, uh, on and on we go. All right. Uh, now, let's deal with this thief on the cross we've question. Got, we've got a – okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. What are you saying? Well, you've got a dissertation there from Aaron. That yeah, let, let me, and Aaron usually is right on the mark. Let me read what he says. First Peter 3.21 doesn't say that baptism is a figure of salvation. It says that our salvation by means of baptism is figuratively similar to Noah's deliverance through the flood. Noah wasn't saved figuratively. He was saved literally and completely. We are saved literally and completely at the point of baptism. And the fact that it is accomplished by water is figuratively similar to the fact that Noah was also saved by water. 
Incidentally, I don't think this passage is saying that Noah was saved from the water or flood, but that he was delivered through by means of the water from the depraved and wicked ones of verses 19 and 20. The water washed away the wickedness and left a pure, clean earth in which Noah could make a new start. People get confused sometimes about how these events are figuratively similar, since the water in Noah's case could be viewed as the problem, not the solution. But the figurative similarity is that the water did the same thing in both cases, purged the wickedness and left behind a fresh new start. The problem that Noah needed to be rescued from was the depravity around him, and God sent the water to do it in a way that would not destroy Noah at the same time. Good thoughts, Aaron. I, I, I could not have said it that way. That's very thorough analysis of the, of the passage, and I appreciate that. All right, now back to the thief on the cross. You wanted to make some comments about that. Okay, well, well your chain of thought. yeah, the, the, uh, uh, the listener who sent in this question went on to say, you know, to make reference to the thief on the cross. If baptism were required in order to save the thief on the cross, Jesus would have jumped off the cross, taken the thief uh, to the nearest river and baptized him, put himself and the thief back on the cross. Uh, well, we, we've dealt with this a lot of times. Uh, and I, I wrote an answer back by email to this listener. And I said, the law of Christ concerning baptism for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, was not enforced until after he died, Hebrews nine fifteen through 17. While he was alive, he could and did directly forgive many people of their sins, including the thief on the cross. Uh, a couple other references, Matthew 9, verse 2, he forgave the sins of a man who was sick of the palsy. He said, thy sins be forgiven thee. Luke 7, verse 48, the woman, the woman who washed his feet with her tears, he told her, thy sins be forgiven thee. While Jesus was alive on earth, and he was still alive on the cross when he spoke to the thief, while Jesus was alive on earth, he could and did forgive the sins of many people. He did the th- he forgave the sins of the thief on the cross. We don't dispute that. But now we must comply with the conditions of his will in order to be forgiven. And baptism is a part of that plan for our forgiveness. Mark 16, 16, Acts 22, 16, etc. As, as we study the spread of Christ's kingdom in the book of Acts, not one single person was ever saved without being baptized for the remission of sins. Excellent comments. And uh, Anthony uh, echoes what you said. He says that uh, Jesus had power on earth to forgive sins. Also, for all we know, the thief had received John's baptism. Thirdly, Jesus' covenant was not in effect at that point, Hebrews 9, 16, and 17. Along the lines of Jesus' covenant not being in effect, Romans chapter 6 is another passage that those who would deny baptism have a difficult time with. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 tells us that baptism is uh, symbolic of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And it would make no sense for us to be baptized uh, for salvation uh, under Jesus' covenant before his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We're baptized into Jesus' death. Talk about symbolism. Those who believe that baptism is something you do after you've been saved, they've got that symbolism in Romans 6 all out of whack. They got you alive and then bury you. They bury an alive person in the waters of baptism. The symbolism of that just falls apart. If baptism, if you're saved before you're baptized, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 don't make any sense at all. All right. Uh, 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Or join in the chat room. We've got Jared. We've got Anthony. We've got another a listener from Albuquerque, New Mexico, it looks like, on, on in the chat room tonight chatting. So you might go out there and see what uh, they're chatting about. Or we'd like to hear from you over the phone or over email tonight. Um, the next question is a really short one. Uh, it, it simply is, let me get this, uh, is the rapture true or false? We've been talking about and even had uh, a suggestion that we deal with uh, it in more depth again, as we have in the past, on the subject of premillennialism. And so we just maybe, Jacob, use this as a, a sort of a tease uh, for a program that we'll have later and deal more with the subject of premillennialism. But you understand, I think most of our listeners probably understand the idea of the rapture. Let me give a, a real quick overview of what these people say is going to happen toward the, ends, the end time. This is a lot of presupposition and not any Bible. They believe that the end is near. And at some point, probably in the very near future, the Lord is going to call his righteous people away. 
That will be the rapture. Uh, that just, people, Righteous people will suddenly just disappear from the earth. Uh, years ago, there was sort of a comical uh, bumper sticker which said, in case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. And the idea was when the Lord calls, people will be driving along in a car, and if they're a righteous person, they'll just be raptured away. The car will just go careening out of control. It doesn't have a driver anymore. Uh, that's the idea of the rapture. The Lord's going to call away the righteous. Uh, that's going to leave the world in a real predicament because all the good people are going to be gone. And there will be seven years of tremendous tribulation on earth. There have been a popular series of books and movies made from the books called the Left Behind series in which it describes the conditions of those who will be left behind when others have been raptured away. At the end of that seven years of tribulation on earth, the Lord is going to return with his saints and with the holy angels. There's, there's going to be a great battle fought. Jesus and his forces will fight all the forces of evil in the great battle of Armageddon. Jesus, of course, will triumph. And at that time, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. The literal throne of David will be reestablished in the city of Jerusalem. And those who believe these theories are even trying to make plans as to how they can help accommodate that, the, the establishment of the throne of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. He's going to reign on earth for a thousand years, a great peaceful reign on earth. And at the end of that, then, uh, will come the final judgment. That's all. That's all. The product of the speculation of men, and they're not any Bible for You know, you hear rapture all the time. You would think that you could find rapture almost on every page of your Bible, but you can look through the Bible and you won't find it anywhere. Yeah, the word is not in the Bible. It's a totally manufactured doctrine. We put it in the same category as the doctrine of the sinner's prayer. You hear it all the time, but you can't find it anywhere in the scriptures. And uh, so it's important for us to know what the scriptures do teach about the coming of Christ in the end times. Let me read uh, Aaron's response to this question. He says, the question was, is the rapture true or false? He says it's false. That was an easy question. But he goes on to say, speaking of Noah, one of the passages commonly used to try and prove the existence of a rapture is Matthew 24, 39 through 42, where it is said that at Jesus' return, some will be taken and others will be left. Sounds like the rapture, right? The problem is that this is another event that is compared to the flood in Noah's day. Look at verses 38 and 39. In the flood, some were taken, others were left too, except that when the flood came and took them all away, it is the wicked, not the righteous, who are taken. And we're told that Jesus' return will be like that. The wicked are not spirited away somewhere off the earth. They were taken in the sense that they were destroyed because they were caught unprepared. When some are taken and others left in verses 40 and 41, you want to be one of the ones left, not one of the ones taken. Interesting. Interesting view. Thank Interesting, you. Interesting, And I think we got Anthony's comment on this. The term rapture is not biblical, but the dead in Christ shall rise first. Rise first, and those that remain will join them in the air. First Thessalonians four sixteen through seventeen. By the way, I think Anthony's right. That's one of the verses I would use against the rapture. Uh, the dead will be raised to meet the Lord in the air, and the rest then that are living at the time will also meet them in the air. And thus shall we ever be with the Lord. It says, as for the lost being left behind, this is false teaching. The earth and all the works that are therein will be burned up. Second Peter three ten. Uh, however, as I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure we know for sure that these two events will occur one right after another, or do we? Um, yeah, I think they, I think they do. Uh, but I'll have to think about that. I hadn't even thought about that question, Anthony. All right, uh, we're going to go on. Uh, we're up against a break, and we have knocked out four. We have three to le- left to go, and we'd like for you to no, chip. We've no, knocked we've, out five. we've knocked we've out five. Left. We've got two more to go, but we'd like to have three or four more to go. And well, we got one that was posted in the chat room. We can get two, two okay, if we get so time. we've got three more to go. Why don't you make it four or make it five? We'd like to hear from you on the program tonight. Give us a call. Send us an email. Join in the chat room. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Wade Shelton, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you're like me, you've probably heard a lot of rumors about what the Church of Christ is all about. Regardless of what the rumors you may have heard, let me just quickly tell you what we are about. The College View Church of Christ is simply a group of Christians that is committed to doing everything that God has commanded us in exactly the way that he commanded us to do it. So we just simply open our Bibles and study them to determine what God has commanded us to do, and then we try to do it. It's just really that simple. Are you interested in being part of a group of people who have this approach to serving God? If so, I hope you will join me and my family as we worship God with the College View Church of Christ this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. 
My name is Steve Novorak, reminding you to listen to the Virtual Bible Study every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the Virtual Bible Study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We want to let you know this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about the College U Church of Christ by visiting thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about uh, what we've taught on the program or what, what the College of Church of Christ is all about, send us an email and let us know your comments. And we should give a heads up, Jacob. <clears throat> we've got a gospel meeting coming up uh, just in a little over a week, uh, starting on Sunday, September 20th and running through Friday night, the 25th. We're going to have a gospel heat meeting here at College View, and we'd like to invite everybody in the Middle Tennessee area. If you, if you can visit our gospel meeting, we'd love to have you come. Uh, it'll be at... Uh, well, 9.30 and 10.30 Sunday morning, 2.30 and 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon, and then Monday through Friday, which is more likely where you might be able to visit with us, Monday through Friday will be at 7 p.m. So when we have different speakers, different preachers from the Middle Tennessee area will be bringing lessons. So we hope, uh, so hope some of our listeners can attend. No nightly collections. You will not be uh, called out or uh, made to feel uncomfortable. But one thing we will do is that we'll be going to the virtual Bible study on Thursday night, and we hope that those who visit might be able to come in and join in a live studio audience that night. And I imagine Arthur will be back Arthur in will the be studio here. at that yeah, time as right. well. All right. We look forward to hearing from you on the program as we continue going to the top of the hour. Two more, Three more questions to go. And we'll have time to take yours if you want to throw it in. So This was a now. real long one, Jacob, and I had to just take highlights out of this. Uh, this was sent to me, uh, and it was an essay written by a man named Andrew Womack entitled, The War is Over. He said, did you know that most Christians still believe their relationship with God is dependent on their performance? They believe answered prayers and God's blessings in their lives are in direct proportion to their holiness and ability to overcome sin. If they attend church, pay their tithes, read their Bibles, and control their flesh, they have somehow earned the blessing of God. Uh, But he says, when we say God is still judging us for our sins, we are saying that the price Jesus paid wasn't enough. Therefore, a judgment must again be made and a sentence passed. That would be double jeopardy, and it's not what the Bible teaches. Sin isn't a problem with God anymore. It's the church that has made it a major deal. Neither past, present, nor future sins can separate us from God. The only people who will go to hell are those who have spurned and rejected the greatest sacrifice that's ever been made. In heaven, we won't answer for our individual sins. Jesus already has. We will answer for our acceptance or rejection of Jesus. Now, um, I I don't know. I I might have some caveats in the way that last part of that sentence is is written. But the, the main thing that I want to key in is neither past present nor future sins can separate us from God, which I believe is an absolutely false statement. Uh, there's so many passages that we could go to. Uh, Anthony in, uh, in in Columbia says the same thing. He says there are many passages that demonstrate that a saved person can fall from grace. I'll let you guys and the other listeners cite them. Well, we've cited them in the past, Dad. Uh, passages that come to mind, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the, his word is not in us. I think the listener said sin isn't a problem anymore, uh, That, uh, but uh, we still see a sin problem that is called out throughout the Scriptures, and Christians are warned about sinning. Let me read to you Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. On that passage uh, that we just read, Aaron writes, so who are those people in Matthew 7, 21 through 23? If sin isn't a problem, why is it said to be the reason why people are lost in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 or Revelation 21, 8? And what about that Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8, verses 18 to 23, whose sin, after he believed and was baptized, was the cause for him to be in danger of perishing, verse 20, and placed him back in the bond of iniquity, verse 23. Whoever asked this question has fallen prey to the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. And so I think the Bible is absolutely full of 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 passages that we could use to argue that a Christian can, so even a person who's a Christian, can so sin as to be eternally lost. We've often referenced 
First uh, Peter chapter two, or um, excuse me, Second Peter chapter two, verses twenty through twenty-two. Uh, Galatians chapter five, verse four says you can fall from grace. Let's look at Revelation chapter twenty-two, beginning in verse eighteen. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the book of uh, the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto them. And to him, the plagues that are written in this book, and notice verse 19 of Revelation 22, and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You can have your name taken out of the book of life. Sounds to me like a sin is still a problem today. Arthur, you have a a comment uh, from behind the camera. Go ahead. Um, In uh, Hebrews uh, 3rd chapter, verse 12, he said, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He's talking to brethren. And it's a possibility they can have a heart of unbelief and depart from the living God. And if they've never been a part of God, how can they depart from the living God? Another one of those, uh, Arthur, is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, where Paul said, I keep my body under, uh, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul knew that he needed to keep his body under subjection or else he could become a castaway. Exactly right. I mentioned Galatians 5, verse 4. Paul said, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, the problem Paul was writing about in Galatians 5 was some who were trying to bring over elements of the Old Testament law of Moses and force that and bind that upon people and require it and say you couldn't be saved without doing certain things that the Old Testament law of Moses required. And that was the issue he was dealing with. But the the emphasis is that he says you can't do that, and if you try to do that, you're falling from grace. So he's talking to Christians, and he said if you do that, you're falling from grace. Well, the point we've often made is you can't fall from something you're not in. You can't fall out of a boat that you're not in. You can't fall out of grace unless you were once in grace. It's possible to fall from grace. Paul talks about some in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, who had done just that. In First Timothy 1, beginning of verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander were some who had put away the faith and made it shipwreck. Okay. Uh, the list goes on. We could talk about many more, but uh, we're running out of time. All right. We've got to get to this one because this is really unusual. Uh, we got an email, and I don't know where it's from, uh, from a listener named Grover. And he says, I recently listened to the archive on Calvinism and felt led to share with you how the Lord helped me better understand the truth of his word on this subject. For I had struggled with the doctrine myself for many years. I'm currently in an online seminary, seminary and one of the things that helped me most in interpreting his word is the rules of biblical interpretation. The rule that he had me apply, and that's that, that's a little troublesome as though the Lord directly led him to apply this rule, but he said the rule that he had me apply in the study of free will to call on the name of the Lord by our, by our choice or not is the rule of first mention. The, the rule of first mention states that however a subject is first mentioned in his word is how it is to be interpreted throughout his word. With this rule in mind, the first mention of man calling on the, the name of the Lord by his choice after the fall of Adam is Genesis 2 verse, excuse me, Genesis 4 verse 26. Uh, and to the same Seth also was born a son and he called his name Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. To me, this scripture plainly states that after the birth of Enosh, men became to call upon the name of the Lord of their free will, not of him making them do so. So uh, he says, if we do not apply the rules of proper biblical interpretation, that leaves us open to misinterpretation of his word and leads to false doctrine. But the, the, and so he, he agrees with us that men have free will, that men are not predestined to either salvation or destruction. He agrees with us, but he comes to that conclusion. And this is what I wanted us to comment about, Jacob, by a rule of biblical interpretation that he calls the rule of first mention. And he says the rule of first mention states that however a subject is first mentioned in his word is how it is to be interpreted throughout his word. I never had heard of such a thing. And I would disagree with it uh, as well. I don't believe it is a scriptural interpretation because God has given different rules to different people. Uh, the first time that a, a boat is mentioned 
in the scriptures. Uh, Noah's building it, and uh, certainly I would not think that, uh, that that's God's instruction for all of us. I hope it's not because it took 120 years to build the thing, and I don't have that much time. Uh, I don't think that the scriptures tell us that we need to take the first place we see it and then apply it from there on. Yeah, I, 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 that, that's a problem. Let me read a couple of responses, Jacob. Uh, you've got Anthony's there. Let me read Aaron's, and then you can read Anthony's. He says, the problem with the rule of first mention is that it leads to such ridiculous conclusions. People sometimes use this supposed principle to interpret the Bible in a manner that attempts to make it some code book for understanding the end of the world. For example, I've heard this rule cited to show that the fig tree in Matthew 24:32 is a symbol of the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, proving that God's final countdown began in 19, began in 1947. But the first mention of a fig tree is in Genesis 3:7, the leaves that Adam and Eve used for clothing, where it is a symbol of a fig tree. The next mention is Deuteronomy 8:8, 8, 8, where fig trees should really be interpreted as fig trees. The sim- the first symbolic mention is Jotham's parable in Judges 9, 9 through 12, where it really represents not Israel, but a worthy candidate who refused to serve as a judge. So folks really have to stretch to get Israel out of this. And for a really perverse example, the first mention of a serpent is Genesis 3, 1, where the serpent is the devil. But in Numbers 21, 8, when Moses makes the bronze serpent, we should understand that this is a real event that serves as a symbolic foreshadowing. But foreshadows Jesus, John 3, for 14, not the devil. If the law of first mention applies to the first reference to the serpent who wasn't just a snake, then how is it later a symbol of Jesus? That's an interesting thing. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of that, but you get the point. In Genesis, the serpent is Satan, but in the case of the brazen serpent, that was symbolic of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, got a problem. Go ahead. Well, that would just, that would disprove the law of first mention. Uh, Anthony says, I'm very, very concerned for the person who submitted this question. The, the notion of first found is so completely flawed it demonstrates a severely deficient understand of the, understanding of the Bible. We absolutely cannot use any such hermeneutic because the Bible as we have it was not written in order from Genesis to Revelation in one setting. The order of the books as we have them today was determined by man. So just because something appears first in Ephesians and later in Jude means absolutely nothing. Even if you tried to put the books in chronological order, we don't know exactly when each book or letter was written in every case. Uh, yes, we have solid evidence for most, he says. The, this notion of first found should be utterly rejected, and frankly, I'm astonished that anyone would suggest it. Good, I really like, I like what Anthony says. You know, the, the, you're making an assumption that, that the books that we have in our Bible were written in that chronolo- chronological order, and, and they weren't. That, that order is not chronological the way they're laid out in our Bibles. And so, A very astute uh, point. Very good observation. I, I never had heard of the rule of first mention, and, and I don't think it is a proper rule of biblical interpretation. Uh, it, in this case, the listener who sent it in, comes to the same conclusion we do about man's free will. But you don't have to use that interpretation to come to that. Right. Uh, we have one question in the chat room, and it's going to be a 15-second answer. So I'm going to give you the question, Dad, and I'll give you 15 seconds to answer. He says, we typically say miracles of the apostles were exclusively to confirm the word. What are your thoughts on the healings of Paul on the island of Melita in Acts chapter 28? There was no apparent faith or preaching of the word. I just was reading this passage and the other uh, the other night, and it made me think. What about that? Well, the, uh, when he was on Melita, you remember he was uh, moving some firewood and got bitten by a snake. He also and then he also healed the uh, father of Publius, who Publius was the uh, uh, chief man of the island, and he healed him. Um, and then it goes on to say, when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and they were healed. Um, and and I would agree with Anthony that there's no record of the preaching being done there. We all, we always say that miracles serve the purpose of revealing and confirming God's truth. But the fact that the, that is the follow-up is not mentioned that Paul preached after performing those miracles, I think would not preclude the likelihood that he did. We know that that was Paul's normal course. And so I don't think he used miracles frivolously there. I think they were used to prove that he was a man of God. And, the, and and knowing Paul's character, I think he would have gone on to use that opportunity to teach. But it doesn't mention it. I have to grant that it doesn't mention it. But we can see that 
that God is using these miracles to show the people that Paul's traveling with that Paul is uh Well, in, in the in the case of the of being bitten by the snake, I think that was a miracle the likes of which are mentioned in Mark 16:17 through 20. Certainly. As God would protect them from harm as they went about preaching the gospel. So I think that miracle I can explain. The healing miracles uh, are a little different and I'd have to agree it doesn't mention doesn't doesn't connect them with uh any preaching of the word but it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that paul used that occasion to do that all right we are out of time but uh, certainly good discussion on some good questions and uh, this serves as a good reminder dad that we're open to taking our listeners questions anytime 24 hours a day seven days a week we'd love to hear from you if you have any bible question that you'd like an answer to send us an email let us We're enjoying these questions. We're getting more of them. Keep them coming. We like to do programs like this where we can cover several topics and things of interest to those who are listening. And thank you for your comments tonight. Thanks. The study. And Arthur, thank you for manning the camera and uh, for your comments as well. It was good to have you. And it was good to have you on the other end. Let us know if you have any comments about the things you've heard on the program tonight. We hope you've benefited from our study of God's Word together, and we hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime... We encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.